So we're going to go to our scripture reading, and this is from Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is found on page 877 of your Pew Bible. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take this one home as a gift from us. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community, to the Brookside campus, especially if this is uh, your first time back in the building uh, or just your first time with us if you're a guest. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, Again, for those of you who have been a part of Christ Community for a while and this is your first Sunday joining us back in the building, we're just, we're really glad to see you and thanks for uh, being here with us and, and doing this together. Uh, as always, a reminder too, we have uh, a whole portion of our congregation that is uh, watching online uh, this morning, um, a service that's been pre-recorded. And so, um, but we're together as one family uh, in, in our church, uh, not only online and in person, but across our five campuses around the city as well. So we're just really glad that you are here with us this morning in this. Uh, we are in the final message of our parable series in the Gospel of Luke. So this summer we've been walking through parables that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Next week we're going to start a new series on how we change in Romans chapter 12 is going to be sort of the focus of that uh, series. So I'm excited for that. Um, We'll come back and finish Luke uh, later on uh, in in January of uh, 2021. And uh, we'll do some other stuff this fall, but just so you know, we're, we're wrapping up Luke this week uh, for, for a time being, and we're going to launch in on how do we change, that we actually as people can change. Um, that's what we're going to look at for a few weeks uh, starting uh, next week. So as we prepare to look at this passage that Holly just read for us, uh, let me pray, and then we'll dive into Luke chapter 18 together. So Father in heaven, thank you that we can come to you in the powerful name of Jesus who gives us, and we're going to look at this in the text today, who gives us the righteousness that allows us to come and and speak to you. You who are utterly distinct from us, but yet not distant from us. You are here with us now by your Spirit. So I pray that your Spirit would illumine, would give light to the word that we're going to look at. Because we know it's only ultimately that we change by your work in us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray in Jesus' name, by his power, even now, as we look at this passage. Amen. Well, 
I don't know about you, but to me, the stakes of all of our decisions and all of our processing in 2020 have just felt way higher than in any other year. Um, I can't think of, of a moment in my life, uh, not just as a, as a human, but certainly as a pastor, as a leader, as a parent, where the decisions, the, the, the pressure to get it right, to do the right thing have been higher, whether on the pandemic as the kind of the, the backdrop to all of life right now, or whether it's uh, issues of, of racial injustice and inequity in our country, or thinking through, uh, yeah, who in the world are you going to vote for in the fall? All these things are so many decisions to be made, so much pressure uh, to get it right, to stand for what is right, to do what is right. And, and whether you are a religious person, a church-going person, or maybe you're, you're here or you're listening to this and um, you're not a particularly, you're more of an irreligious person, I, I think we feel that regardless, that we want to get it right. We want to do the right thing. And it might look different or take different forms, but I think if we're honest, we all want to do it right. We want to get it right. And I think the pressure there to get it right, to be right, to do the right thing, is not just that we want to have sort of made the right decision in the abstract, but that we are always asking the question, am I doing the right thing? And then the kind of assumption is so that I will be accepted by my people. Whoever you identify as that group of my people, like your family, your, your coworkers, um, your, your political affiliation, whatever, but who are my people that I want to accept me? We want to do the right thing and do it as the right thing in the eyes of our people. Because it's never just about the issue, right? Whether, you know, mass or polling or um, policing or politics or health, right? It's always about something deeper, this deeper level of, of who are my people? And am I loved and wanted and accepted and approved of by them? Do they think I'm a good person? Am I lovable? Am I accepted? Am I wanted? Do I belong with my people? And these are questions that cut across cultures and times. They are the basic questions and longings of every human heart. How do I get that goodness, that acceptability, that, that love and sense of being wanted that we long for as people? And in the parable that Jesus tells this morning, he puts on display two different ways of trying to get that acceptability, that goodness, that approval and he shows us one way that works and one way that utterly fails. So let's take a look here this morning. Here's the setup for the parable that Jesus tells. There are two guys, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it's almost like it sounds like he's setting up like a two Pharisees and a tax collector walk into a bar, kind of a joke, right? It sounds like the beginning of a, of a bad joke. A Pharisee and a tax collector. But Jesus is about to show something really profound here. But I think we often miss it and, and how profound it is because, especially if you've been around church for a while, if you've grown up going to church, if, if church is kind of a familiar place, you've been reading the Bible for a while, if that's you, um, if that's not you, then you, you're actually at an advantage maybe in, in reading this parable. But if you've been around the church for a long time, when you listen to the Gospels being taught, we tend to view the Pharisees as negative characters who always oppose Jesus and completely miss what he's doing, which is true. We sort of hear when they come on the scene, again, if you've been around church for a while, it's almost like that, you know, imperial march from Star Wars, like when a Pharisee comes on, you kind of hear that Darth Vader music, they're like, bum, 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 bum. We have this, 
this negative association with the Pharisees. But Jesus' original hearers wouldn't necessarily, they were, they were the religious elite, they were sort of the ones who, who were following God the best in that culture, that's what they, they thought. And so Jesus' original hearers, when they hear Pharisee, they didn't have that sort of negative imperial Star Wars music playing in their minds when they, when they heard that. They actually said, this is, this is someone who is the most upstanding person in my community, no one tried harder to obey God, to keep the law, to be a good person, to do the right thing than the Pharisees. They were respected and admired. So here's the picture of a Pharisee as Jesus' listeners would have perceived him. Right? They would have viewed as this is someone who's ex- super careful to do everything right, to follow the rules, um, to be ethical, uh, to, to be integral. I mean, they're careful to avoid even the appearance of wrongdoing. They, they are the ones who pay really close attention to theological detail. They, I mean, they knew, and literally, I mean, they knew their ba- the Bibles backwards, forward, had large portions, probably most of the Old Testament memorizing. These are Bible scholars. They practice what they preach. Everyone knows how great this person is. He's admired, massive respect, smartest person in the room. People would have loved to have them over for dinner, to be, ha- be honored to have one of these guys speak at their graduation. Um, when he prays, people want to learn from him. That's the, that's the first guy, the Pharisee. That's how Jesus' listeners would have thought about it. They wouldn't have immediately said, oh, oh Pharisee, boo. They would have Pharisee, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is the model, this is the example. Now, the second guy, the tax collector, I mean, he's the villain in the story, in the culture. He's the traitor. He's collaborating with the oppressors to collect taxes from Rome, from God's people. I mean, this guy is the worst. He is a traitor. I mean, he's Wormtail. He's, he's Gollum. He is the one that you hate in the story. Nobody wants his opinion or their ideas. He extorts the poor with crushing taxes, uh, reports them to the authorities when they don't pay. He puts liens on their property, confiscates their possessions, all the while while lining his own pockets to, to be wealthier himself. Most people don't even think he deserves to be near the temple, much less in the temple praying to God. He's an object of God's wrath. People pray against him. They beg for God to bring an end to him and his injustices. And both of these guys, the tax collector and the Pharisees, they show up at the temple. is the one who's approved, who's accepted, who's seen as good and welcome in God's sight? It's the second guy, the tax collector, the wormtail. He's the one who God declares right, just, good, accepted, righteous. How can that be? And that gets us into the heart of Jesus' teaching here on the two ways of getting that goodness, that righteousness, that approval, that right standing, that acceptability that we long for. So these are the two ways. The first way is this. It's the way of the Pharisee, and that is the way of an achieved goodness. The way of the Pharisee is a way of of achieved goodness, of a goodness that we achieve on our own. And listen how Jesus describes the Pharisee in the parable. And notice... This, the, the, even his posture. He's standing and, 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 and as he's praying there, and then listen as I read this for the word I. So this is verse 11. Jesus says, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's, that's a lot of I in a very short period of time. And notice he, he's standing far off. And I don't think he was just social distancing, right? It wasn't just that he was making sure he was six feet apart. And he's putting himself in a place where he could be seen by others. He's not lost in the crowd of the temple. He's, he's standing apart from the others where he can be observed and be seen praying. And now again, the, the, the life that he describes is a good one. I mean, nothing that he lists there is bad. And his, his level of fasting, his level of giving actually exceed what God had called his people to in the Old Testament. He's going above and beyond what God called for in the Old Testament covenant laws. So basically, this guy, he's doing all the homework, the extra credit, and then he invented some more homework to do just to show the teacher how much he really cared. So what's the problem? The problem of the Pharisee is not his actions. It's not the things that he lists there that he's done. That's not the problem, but his attitude. It's not his deeds. It's his disdain that is the problem. Because notice again, look back to verse 9, where Luke gives the reason that Jesus is telling this parable in the first place. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were good, that they were acceptable, and treated others with contempt and treated others with contempt. His concept of goodness. He was convinced, right? He's convinced that he is good because of those achievements that he had accomplished. And as a result, then he treats others with contempt who have not risen to that level of achieved goodness. And contempt is one of the most deadly attitudes to human relationships and to our relationship with God, but it is the poison in relationship. The word translated contempt here uh, means to treat someone as having no merit or worth. To treat someone as having no merit or worth. Worthless. Uh, the Gottman Institute, which is, uh, it's not a, a Christian or a religious institute, but the, it's, they study marriages. They just do lots of work on studying marriages. The Gottman Institute identifies contempt in marriage as the number one predictor of divorce. I mean, they studied tens of thousands of marriages and, and looked at couples, and they identify this, this concept, this emotion, this attitude of contempt as the number one predictor of divorce. Listen to what they write. It says contempt is the most destructive negative behavior in relationships. Treating others with disrespect and mocking them with sarcasm and condescension are forms of contempt. So are hostile humor, name-calling, mimicking, body language, eye-rolling and sneering. In whatever form, contempt is poisonous to a relationship. Why? Because it conveys disgust and superiority, especially moral, ethical, or characterological. Contempt, and this is, this is exactly what I think what Jesus is getting at here. Contempt simply says, I'm better than you, and you are lesser than me. Contempt. That was how this Pharisee viewed others with this contempt that I am better than you and you are lesser than me. And one of the ways that I have expressed contempt myself uh, is in sort of this subtle but withering Luke that, uh, that Rachel's dubbed my what-the-heck look. 
And, and I'm sure that um, my staff has seen it. I was actually afraid to ask them if they've seen it, but I'm sure I get this look on my face even with it, and I know my closest friends have seen it, but it's just this, I, and most of the time I'm not even aware that it's happening. But it's the moment that, I, that I, when I think I'm right, when I've got it figured out, when I know what's going on, and the other person is wrong, I get this look on my face that apparently screams, you must be an idiot incapable of seeing the most basic and obvious facts of reality. <laughs> and what am I doing in those moments? I'm certainly not living out of a rock-solid security in my relationship and confidence in Jesus' love for me. I can tell you that. No, I'm relying on or trying to convince myself that I can rely on my own goodness, my own smartness, my own rightness, my own acceptability, my own clear-eyed view of reality. And that contempt makes me a terrible human being. So where do you find contempt bubbling up in your life. And when you start sensing contempt welling up, be sure that you are starting to operate out of an achieved goodness framework. When you start to feel contempt welling up, you know you're starting to operate out of an achieved goodness framework. Right, arguments with friends and coworkers, siblings, spouses, social media, politics, theological correctness, all these are spaces for contempt in your own heart. Begin to look for it in those spots. Don't look for it in others, because then you, you could easily fall into the trap of saying, God, I'm so thankful I don't have so much contempt like all those other people. <laughs> but when you start to have arguments, when you start to have disagreements, start looking for where is contempt welling up in my heart? Harvard Business School professor and founder of the American Enterprise Institute, Arthur Brooks, makes this observation. He says, we don't have an anger problem in American politics. We have a contempt problem. If you listen to how people talk to each other in political life today, you notice it is with pure contempt. When somebody around you, and then this, I think this is so insightful, he says, when somebody around you treats you with contempt, you never quite forget it. So he says, if we want to solve the problem of polarization today, we have to solve the contempt problem. Right, so when you see contempt bubbling up, you know you're operating out of that achieved goodness framework. Goodness you're trying to achieve on your own. The ore that you're trying to protect and secure and prop up and, and make safe by looking down on others, right? Often it's we are worried, we're anxious, we're scared about looking a certain way, and so it's easier to look down on others, to treat others with contempt, to shore up our own sense of our achieved goodness. So here's the question then. But what do you do when you find yourself there? When you, you start having this inkling of, oh no, like I, I'm becoming that person, the contempt is welling up, I'm looking down on others. What do you do when you find yourself there? Well, first, stop and, and, and just name it for what it is. I mean, that's a huge first step to notice that that's happening to yourself. Okay, wow, all right, I feel like I'm, I'm acting in contempt. I'm naming it as that. And the secret to becoming a truly good person, though, in the Bible, is actually the first step is to own that you aren't. The first step in the Bible lays out that to owning, the, the, to becoming a, a truly good person is actually to own the reality that I'm not a truly good person. 
This is the paradoxical, paradoxical nature of Jesus' kingdom. This is the paradox of the kingdom. Once you realize that you're hopeless, then you can find hope. It's only when you realize that you're utterly helpless that you are ready to receive help. Only when you are down can you be lifted up. And this is what leads us then to the second way to this kind of acceptability. And that's the way of received goodness. So the, the Pharisee was operating out of this achieved goodness. The tax collector takes the path of a received goodness. This is verses 13 and 14. Look at these. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, righteous, declared good, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, note that this tax collector's bad works, the injustice that he had perpetrated, none of that's denied. In fact, he owns it. I am a sinner. I am the worst God doesn't deny that he's done a bunch of awful things. He doesn't deny that he's done a bunch of awful things. God isn't saying, you know, it's great that you extorted all those people, no big deal. Just like the Pharisees' good works weren't commented on in any way. They weren't denied or, or, or rejected, right? The tax collector knows that in this case, the standing he has before God is not based on what he has done or not done. He knows, right, and this is the key, right? He's coming to the sacrifice, or coming to the temple, which is where sacrifices were made, and basically saying, I don't have any, there's no sacrifice I can bring. The, the, the Pharisee, he was tithing, he was bringing money, he was all this stuff. He's bringing all these things. For, the, he comes empty-handed. I'm a sinner, that's all I've got. There is no sacrifice that I can bring that can cover over all the junk that I've done. The only thing I can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He asks God to provide atonement, forgiveness for him, and he receives a goodness and a mercy that comes then from the outside. In fact, when he asks for mercy, it isn't even the most common word that's used in the New Testament for, for mercy. I was actually surprised as I was studying. I was like, oh, I'm sure this is going to be just the normal old word for mercy. It's not. It's a, it's a different word. It's actually the word for atonement or covering of sin. And, and he doesn't make a show. He knows he's beyond that. He simply comes and asks for mercy, for forgiveness, not because of anything he's achieved. And in Jesus' kingdom, which is the truest reality, vulnerability and humility lead to greater intimacy. They lead to, to greater intimacy, not less. And if you've been in a relationship with a spouse, with a friend, with a family member, a parent, a child over any time. You know this, right? That in the best of human relationships, that transparency and vulnerability in the best of human relationships do breathe, breathe a, a, a tighter knitting together. As you're able to say, look, I, I've, I've blown it. I've messed up. I really screwed up here. I, I can't. There's no excuse. And having that person see you and all of your faults and all of your ugliness and, and say, I, I, still, I forgive you, I accept you, I still love you, it deepens connection. 
Received goodness always does. But achieved goodness, it always separates you from others because you have to posture, you have to hide, you have to prove. If you're working out of an achieved goodness framework, anytime you screw it up, blow it, any of that, it becomes this major sort of uh, attack or, or, or just this utter crushing of your whole framework for how you're okay in the world. And so in that framework, you sort of say less and less that I'm wrong, that I'm sorry, because it's a threat to the very thing that you're trusting in to make you okay. So here's the, the next step here. Cling, cling to his mercy. Stop trying to achieve your own goodness. Stop trying to rely on yourself and instead ask for what you could never earn or deserve. And that's mercy. And, and on the other side, you will discover a joy like you've never imagined. Because this is not just, a, this is not a parable about our deeds, but it's a parable about Jesus' mercy. It's about coming into a relationship with him. The tax collector isn't accepted and welcomed because of his bad deeds. He's welcomed and, expected, and accepted in spite of his bad deeds because of Jesus' mercy, because of the sacrifice. And yet our pharisaical hearts, and there's part of us that all have that part of the Pharisee in us, that our pharisaical hearts say, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not just. How can God have mercy on someone who has done so much wrong, taken advantage of the poor and oppressed? How is that just? How is that right? But this is exactly why Jesus went to the cross. So that he could be just in justifying unjust people like you, like me, like everyone. And, and listen to this. This is how a former arrogant self-righteous, contemptful Pharisee named the Apostle Paul who was radically and utterly transformed by the mercy of Jesus. This is how he explains this in his letter to the Romans. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, But now apart from the law of righteousness, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. And listen, there's an overlapping of language that Jesus uses here in Luke 18. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's the, that language of atonement is the same language of mercy used in this parable. A sacrifice of atonement by the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus receives all of our injustice, all of our unrighteousness, all of the things that we have done to just blow it so that we can receive his goodness. Christians, brothers and sisters, we operate out of a received goodness, not out of an achieved goodness. And our problem, both now and from the very beginning, has been trusting and relying on ourselves to get what we can only get from God. And this is the story of so much of my life, arrogantly looking down on others with contempt in an effort to make myself okay. And part of what it means for me to throw myself on the mercy is owning that I have contempt, owning that I compare, owning that I look down, owning that I am helpless to change those things. Say, so Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And here's the thing, though, the way to get prideful, self-reliant people, whether of their religious or the irreligious variety, and look, contempt does not just sit in religious or irreligious camp. It cuts across the entirety of human experience. The way to get contemptful people is not to shame them and say, look at how prideful and contemptful you are. How could you? No, the way to get prideful, contemptful, arrogant people like me to change is to captivate our imaginations with who Jesus is. He's he's completely good. He has an achieved goodness. He is completely good, and yet, without any arrogance, without any contempt, he's gentle and lowly, even though he is high and exalted, he has absolute confidence in his identity and the love of the Father. And on the cross, Jesus died in your place that you could receive his righteousness, his goodness. And when we keep trying to achieve it and rely on ourselves, we are like a daughter who receives a new bike from her mom but won't ride it until she saves up enough allowance to pay her mom back. And say, I did it by myself. I didn't rely on you, mom. I didn't take anything from you. But the mom said, no, I'm giving you this as a gift. You don't have to earn it. So come to Jesus and receive the goodness, the true righteousness, the true justification and approval that frees you from striving to prove you are good, that frees you from the shame of not being enough. That's what's on offer in this passage. You can either have an achieved goodness that leads to contempt or a received goodness that leads to joy, an achieved goodness that leads to isolation, or a received goodness that leads to relationship. Jesus is standing there ready to offer mercy to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us a received goodness that we could never get on our own. And just ask that you would make that fresh and new to each one of us here this morning. Perhaps we are realizing for the first time that we've been operating out of that old achieved goodness framework. And maybe today is the first time we say, okay, I'm actually, I'm I'm stepping into a new life. Or maybe we have stepped into that new life, but we've been operating out of an old framework. And we've seen the contempt in our hearts. Would you heal us of that? Make us people who operate out of the joy of a received goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.